one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 406, for the week of Monday, February 20th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Really happy to be here, Sawyer. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Wow, when you take a week off, it seems like a month almost. Good to be here. I know, it has felt like a really long time. Also joining us tonight is our first guest of the fourth season of Talking Space in 2012. Our guest tonight is a software engineer for Northrop Grumman. He is also the flight software lead for NASA's L-Cross program, a great musician, I might add, and executive producer of Untied Music. He is a public speaker and does outreach from school kids to space ups. And according to Gene McCulka, he can throw a mean tribble. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get more into that later, but in the meantime, please welcome to the show, Emery Stagmer. Well, thank you very much. So, uh, the big question is, you've got a lot on your resume. How did you even get into this mess? Well, you know, that's kind of interesting. I got recruited when I, I was still working for the uh, Lytton Corporation. Lytton has subsequently been bought by Northrop Grumman, so I, I still have a, uh, a 21-year history at my current job. And I changed jobs a couple of times within the group at Lytton that I worked for in College Park, Maryland. And they were standing up a new organization that they were calling the Space Systems Operation within Lytton. And I got recruited by uh, a guy that I had only met once or twice. whose name was Larry Linton. And Larry stopped me walking between buildings one day and says, how would you like to build spacecraft? And I went, how would I like to do What? <laughs> And they had just won a contract to build a spacecraft called Earth Observing One. And they needed to stand up a flight software team to work on that. Uh, that was in probably October or November of uh, 1996. So I've now been working uh, spacecraft over 15 years. Uh, my first uh, spacecraft that I actually worked on, uh, Lytton invested engineering hours in the Goddard's uh, Space Flight Center's WMAP program, the Wilkinson Microwave Anisostropy Probe, which was looking at the background radiation of the universe. And we went and learned how Goddard did software, and then we licensed their software and hardware architecture with the Space Act and created Earth Observing 1. Earth Observing 1 launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base in November of 2000 and completed its one-year mission and is still flying today, 11 and a half years later, having never rebooted. 
So we're really proud of that little bird, and it gets a lot of press in the uh, Earth Observatory uh, blogs and, and business, uh, doing a lot of really neat stuff. So I, I kind of got, got drug into it, but I'd always been a bit of a space geek. So it was, uh, it was, a, really interesting, it was a really interesting time. Earth Observing 1 uh, and, the, and the group at Goddard that I met and the folks that we worked with, uh, with uh, let's see, we were, at, we were working with Lytton. Uh, we were working with another company in the uh, in the Goddard area called uh, the Hammers Company, and a couple other. Uh, let's see, the, the the spacecraft was built by the Swales uh, Aerospace Corporation, that's now a division of ATK, so they've been bought as well. Uh, and I still keep in touch with some of the folks that I met there. I got to be uh, literally lifelong friends. So uh, it was a really fantastic time, and and. Uh, but people really took me under their wing and taught me the spacecraft business. Uh, the learning curve, let's just say, is steep. <laughs> Here's a unique question, you know, related to that, how you got involved and, you know, you became a software engineer. What exactly does the title of a software engineer for a spacecraft entail? Mostly what it entails is paperwork. Uh <laughs> But really what we do more than anything else is is integration and testing. We have to, of course, uh, test absolutely everything that goes into a satellite because you can't fix it. I mean, you can't get in there with a screwdriver. You can't take it apart. You can't reboot it even uh, except remotely once it gets launched. Uh, and so Earth Observing 1 is only 400 miles away, but it's whizzing around the Earth at 17,500 miles an hour, so we really can't get to it. Um, Elkros went a lot further away. Uh, Elkros, uh, of course, went to the moon and found uh, water ice on the south pole of the moon. But during its orbit, uh, before it between launch and, and impact, it was as far away as 700,000 kilometers, so it was quasi-deep space. It was almost twice as far away as the moon at some points. So uh, that was a that was a really fantastic mission, and I thought I'd learned a lot about spacecraft. Uh, and then I had to work on Elcross. <laughs> so, um, so what does a flight software engineer entail? Uh, the biggest thing is that we have uh, a lot of very stringent requirements that have to be met from our customers, and we go and find ways to implement those. Uh, generally. We implement them using what is called heritage. We go find ways that that's been done before or ways that specifically we have done it before, and we re-implement that or we implement it. We tell the customers, here's how we did it. Here's what we want to do and again. And they say, good, go do that and go test it. And uh, so every requirement that they give us, we have to go write tests for, and, and then you have you know official test report documents and all those kinds of boring things to do. Uh, in between, you get to have a lot of fun. You get to write a lot of code. Uh, when I was first invited, when Larry Linton first invited me to work on spacecraft, I I really, I thought about it for a while. Oh, I didn't think about it real long, but I thought about it for a while. And I thought, boy, I, I've just come off of a job where I was implementing something really interesting and technical, and it was very, very challenging. And what do I do next? I was almost thinking at the time. And so he comes up with this offer, and boy, I thought, boy, there, there can't be anything more exacting or demanding than, than building NASA spacecraft. 
uh, and I had like I had no idea how right I was. Um, L Cross was a small spacecraft. Uh, it was about six feet in diameter and about two and a half feet tall. Um, it didn't have any moving parts. It didn't have we reaction wheels. All it had was uh, thrusters, sun sensors, a solar panel, and instruments that we could turn on and off. Uh, so there just, I mean, there just wasn't really that much to it. It's about as simple a spacecraft as you really can fly, except if you're flying like a CubeSat that didn't have any control at all. That spacecraft had 85 uh, interface control documents that I had to interface with as the lead flight software engineer. So um, you can imagine how, how complicated something uh, gets when it's really big and really complicated. <laughs> I got to ask a question. When you say interface control, does that mean uh, like systems that the software operates on the spacecraft? That many different uh, inputs and outputs that have to be handled? Right. So, for instance, uh, LCROSS had a star tracker, which is basically a black and white camera that looks at the stars and figures out what star pattern you're seeing and therefore knows where the spacecraft is pointing. That interface control document was about, I don't know, 50 or 60 pages. Um, it had um, probably 30 or 40 different commands that you could send it and um, a half a dozen or so different data packets that it can send out. Some of those are diagnostic. Some of those are, are used, uh, you know, operationally. But we had to create uh, command and telemetry data structures in the flight software that not only could read the data off the star tracker, but then provide it over to software that's controlling the spacecraft called the attitude control software, as well as send that to the ground, the ground system, so we can know what the star trackers are doing. That's just one, you know, one piece of the of all of the fifty or sixty kinds of different things that are on the spacecraft. We had to know about, you know, all the uh, all the heaters, we had to know about the gyros, we had to know about the sun sensors, we had to know about the, the power systems. We had uh, um, a, a box on the, the system that just fired thrusters. So we had commands to the thruster firing system. Um, and every one of those has at least one document. Some of them have two or three. Some of them will have a mechanical interface document. They'll have an electrical interface document. And they'll have a hardware software interface document if they have you know command and, command and control data. So I had to keep track of all those documents. I didn't really have to keep track of the mechanical and electrical ones too much. Somebody else was doing that. The the, um, the spacecraft system leads or the the uh, the bot, what's called the box lead, the guy who's in charge of the the various different boxes that have to interface uh, keeps track of the electrical and mechanical interfaces. Um, I had to mostly keep track of just what's called the hardware software interface documents. Uh, we just call those ICDs. Of course, NASA has an abbreviation for everything. That's an ICD. An interface control document, and like I said, we had like I had like a, I think 85 of those that I kept track of just for the software. On uh, of, a satellite is fairly simple at Velcros, and we created a lot of documents too. Uh, we probably let's see, I think we created the software team created about eight documents, uh, some of which were rather large. Uh, one of them was the uh, what's called the command and telemetry handbook. It has all the data structures for every command that goes from the ground up to the spacecraft and every telemetry packet that gets created on the spacecraft that goes to the ground. Uh, we actually, in our group, we actually automate the creation of that document from a database that describes all the command and telemetry data structures. And on LCROSS, that document was uh, probably about 500 pages. 
both on Elcross and Earth Observing Mission 1, were there any moments where you just kind of sort of sat there and went, my God, what did I just get myself into? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, can you speak up to those kind of moments a little bit as far as um, what the challenges were and how you had to go ahead and overcome them? Um, Earth Observing 1 was probably the most ideal spacecraft to work on as a newbie. Um and, and I wasn't a lead on that. I was, I was what, uh, let's see, my title on that was uh, software integration lead. Um, I, I, didn't, I wasn't really a lead site software engineer. I was in charge of making sure that all the different pieces worked together. So we had software that was being provided from three different groups, and I had to kind of make sure it all worked together. Uh, although, I, now, you, now you take me back. There was a challenge on Earth Observing 1 that was really, really hard. Um, the spacecraft processor... It's a MIPS R3000 derivative processor. It's essentially the same processor that's in a PlayStation, uh, but, a, but a space radiation-hardened version of that called a Mongoose 5 that was designed at Goddard. The Mongoose had a flaw in it, as it turns out. They decided specifically not to implement a certain kind of a math operation, which is called an arithmetic underfoil. If you multiply two extremely small numbers together, you get a, small, a number that's even smaller than that, right? One one billionth times one one billionth is some phenomenally small number. And eventually you run out of uh, binary digits. You can't represent anything that small. And so you underflow, and generally the processors would be told, oh, when you get a number that little, just give me back a zero. The Mongoose 5 doesn't do that. It throws a fault. And it says, there's an unimplemented operation exception. It doesn't even tell you that it's a floating point number operation exception. It just says there's a problem. It took me nine months to imp implement an emulator that would recognize that that's what the problem was and give you back a zero. I mean, it sounds like a really simple thing, but it actually involved um, patching the VxWorks operating system um, and writing about a thousand lines of assembly code some of which we lifted from NetBSD Unix. So there was some really interesting innovation that we did there. Holy. Uh, it was <laughs> a real, and and I, actually, I actually ran across the white paper uh, that I wrote. It's about a, about a six-page white paper that I wrote describing that, that implementation. Uh, so that was a really interesting time. Um, on LCROSS, uh, we actually almost lost the mission. And... Uh, yeah, it was, uh, let's just say it was really touch and go for a couple of hours. Um, and there's a, there's a great uh, blog post about it on NASA's website. And unfortunately, I think that they have kind of removed the link to this, and so people will have to hunt for it a little bit. But if you go to the um, nasa.gov slash blogs, and you search, you'll have to search for LCROSS, you'll eventually run down in one of those search replies down to the Elcross Flight Director's blog written by Paul Tompkins, uh, which if you have any interest at all in Elcross or what we were trying to do or any kind of the technical things about that, Paul is a fantastic writer. This blog is just so fun to read. He's just great. Um, and he was the lead, he was the lead uh, operator and also did some of the science work on LCROSS. Actually, Paul is now uh, an employee at SpaceX and is a Dragon Capsule flight director. So <laughs> I really hope to hear good things um, 
out of them at some point uh, if they, they let uh, Paul, Paul uh, back into his blogging world because he's a great writer. But there's an entry from October the 4th, 2009 uh, from Paul Tompkins, and we had a, a, major, a major problem when we came in and acquired spacecraft telemetry early on a Saturday morning. It was, it was uh, about two-thirds of the way through the mission, and we came up in the, in the Mission Operations and Control Center. Uh, this was uh, there on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. We actually had uh, two different, um, or we had four different Mission Operations Centers. We split it up into a virtual operations center, and that was one of the real interesting innovations we did for LCROSS. So anyhow, they came up uh, on the West Coast. They were a lot earlier. Uh, so here they are at 3.25 in the morning, all right, on a Saturday morning. Uh, they, they get acquisition of signal. They start talking to the spacecraft and start getting data, and all these yellow and red alarms are, like, all over the, all over the control pages. And it was like an Apollo 13 moment. We were like, what on earth is going on? There was nobody to say, Houston, we have a problem. We were the only people who would know, right? Uh, and, and, and where I was, because I'm on the... I'm on the East Coast, so it's three hours earlier. So it's at least I'm at least six o'clock in the morning. It's not quite as bad. It's three a.m. trying to for them trying to figure out what's going on. So uh, we had lost an awful lot of propellant. Uh, and as it turns out, um, if we had been about two hours later in acquiring that telemetry, uh, we would have lost the mission. We would not have had enough propellant to complete. Uh, the mission for Alcross to guide our uh, Centaur rocket upper stage into the into the south pole of the moon. So uh, the next couple of weeks were spent uh, in almost constant contact with the satellite, which meant that we had a flight operations team that wasn't really sized to do continuous operations. We were really only sized to talk to the spacecraft every you know couple of days. So here we are uh, having to basically man round the clock shifts uh, for wow. about yeah for a couple of weeks. Um, we only had we really only had two teams, and so to man uh, round the clock shifts for a week meant that we're working you know 12 hour shifts with an hour overlap um, and having to be back in 12 hours later. Uh, so that was uh, that was a rather let's say rather challenging time. Uh, yeah, the, really. The the, uh, the the blog really talks about all of that, and uh, it was just a. But it, it was also one of those finest moments, you know, one of those just NASA finest moments things where, you know, we actually not only did we solve the problem, but the guys who created the the control software that tells the spacecraft how to point. They went off and and literally worked a miracle. They basically redesigned the entire control theory for the whole satellite in days and came back and uploaded all new um, what are called control constants up to the spacecraft. And when we started working on those, we were then using one-tenth of the fuel that we had been using before the anomaly. So, they, I mean, we just went on this super conservative fuel mode um, and ended up with actually fuel left at the end of the mission where originally, you know, at the beginning of this problem, we, we were within two hours of losing the mission. We actually ended up with extra fuel at the end. It was really quite, quite an amazing time. So, Emory, I've got a question. Uh, 
that was one of those events I remember hearing about that required that uh, your team uh, get additional time on the, the tracking network to talk to the spacecraft, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, was, that, was that easy or was that a, a tough one to, to pull? Um, NASA has procedures in place, you know, for those kinds of contingencies. Um, spacecraft do declare emergencies. Uh, you know, teams declare spacecraft emergencies from time to time. And, uh, you know, when you declare a spacecraft emergency, that's the kind of the buzzword for I need to talk to my satellite pretty much all the time uh, for right now, you know. And so you, you try and not do that. I mean, there's a lot of satellites out there, and all of them that are talking on the deep space network, which we were having to use, are, you know, they're generally big, expensive missions. I mean, it's, you know, at the time it was uh, Cassini, Voyagers. <laughs> Who else was out there? I guess New Horizons was, New Horizons was out there by then. Uh, so we're talking to spacecraft at Saturn. We're talking to spacecraft at Mars. We're talking to spacecraft on the way to Pluto. Uh, we're talking to spacecraft out on the edge of the solar system. You know, and so they're like, okay, well, we've got to we've got to shift away from Elcross for an hour so we can go talk to you know Voyager two. We're like, that is just so surreal, <laughs> you know. And then they'd come back to us, you know, and we'd make sure that nothing happened in the in the two hours they were gone, you know. And we got pretty confident with it pretty quick, and then and we could you know ramp down our our team's uh, uh, need to continually talk to it, and and and, and sometimes we could actually. Uh, look at it, but we couldn't command it. So every once in a while, we get in a mode with the Deep Space Network where they say, okay, we can give you really low-rate telemetry. You can talk to this, get data from the spacecraft at, you know, 8 kilobits per second or something, but you can't command it. So if you have a problem, there's not really anything you can do about it. You'll just know. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I, w I was going to ask, uh, in, in cases like that there, Emery, was there sort of like a, a, a let's make a deal type thing where you're saying, please, we need to find out certain certain things and about the health of our spacecraft? Did you have to go ahead and play let's, let's make a deal as far as, you know, the, the time sharing basis for, for the comm or, or what? Um, you know, I'll be honest, um, I was a kind of a user at that end. Um, I wasn't doing any of that negotiating. That was all being done uh, with the flight operations team out at NASA Ames. Um, so they would basically just say, okay, your your shift starts then and it runs for 12 hours. That's all I'd know. So I know some of the, you know, I know some of the, some of the things that would happen while we were doing it, but I wasn't part of the negotiation process. That's between, uh, that was between the NASA center uh, that was actually doing the mission operations and, and JPL and the Deep, Deep Space Network. Ah, Okay. Above my pay grade, as it was. <laughs> the day of recording, which is Monday, February 20th, 2012, is a major milestone, being the 50th anniversary of the first American to orbit the Earth, John Glenn. Right. How do you feel that we have progressed from John Glenn to 2012? In some ways, technically, of course, what we're capable of doing today is so much more sophisticated than that, you almost can't compare it. It's like, you know, comparing a, a Wright Brothers uh, flyer to a, a you know, a, a Boeing Dreamliner. Um, the, the differences are astounding. And in other ways, we've, we've really gone backwards because we're afraid to do that again. We're afraid to take that risk as a nation and as a NASA as an agency. 
I think that you're going to see some private companies taking those kinds of risks um, and making those kinds of amazing strides uh, that the space program made. Um, go, go, if you haven't ever watched it, go watch the series when we left Earth. Wow. The, just the, every, every flight they made was something that nobody had ever done before. Uh, you know, they, I mean, they progressed from um, Alan Shepard's uh, ballistic trajectory launch to doing spacewalks in, what, five years? It was amazing. Uh, less than five years. What, three? I'd have, yeah. to, I'd have to go look at the timeline. It was a really short period of time. Yeah, I, th I think, I'm trying to remember when Ed White's spacewalk was. I think it was like 1965, 66, somewhere in that time frame. Right, yeah, so it's like yeah. three years or something. Yeah. And, and, um, and then uh, the first, actually, his spacewalk wasn't really all that successful. I mean, he was, he was out there and he was doing things, but he wasn't really very functional, right? And like three right. flights later, when Buzz Aldrin went up, what he was doing was so much more sophisticated in terms of its spacewalk. In, in, in reality, that was one of Buzz Aldrin's really greatest achievements, was learning how to do spacewalks. He figured it out. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's a fascinating little tidbit. Okay, he was the second guy on the moon, and it's really cool, and he's a great <laughs> public speaker. He's funny. Oh, man. yeah. And he's oh, out yeah. there he's all grand. the time. But uh, he was the guy who figured out how to do spacewalks. I mean, really, he figured out how to train for them. He figured out uh, the, the kinds of movements that you need to do, the economy of movement, how you used your hands to go from place to place. Um, how you had to control yourself and and uh, and all that. I mean, that's all on the uh, when we left Earth uh, series. I, I was fascinated by that, you know, watching, you know, Ed White and and I forget who went out uh, after him. There was a, there was another spacewalk that they did um, between them that was a spectacular failure. Uh, they almost lost a guy. Um, uh, one of the um, one of the Gemini flights and uh, and then. Ed yeah, that, I think that was Gene Cernan. Yeah, that was the flight before him. I think that was uh, Gene Cernan's flight. Yeah, it could it could have been. Um, I just don't remember who it was offhand. And uh, and then Buzz goes out and and makes it look like ballet. You know, it's just amazing. <laughs> you know, just how fast that knowledge progressed. And we're not progressing that fast anymore. Uh, it's almost like all we're doing is polishing cannonball. We're not you know we're not building new things anymore. We're just we're taking something that we pretty much know how to do and, and making it just a little bit better rather than building a new can of a cannon. So uh, I, I'm hoping that we're going to see uh, Sierra Nevada and, and SpaceX and, and even some of the suborbital companies, uh, Lynx, uh, X-Core company with their, their Lynx vehicle. And, um, of course, Virgin Galactic is building some just fantastic-looking vehicles. Um, and they're probably going to start doing powered flights this year. Um, uh, Armadillo Aerospace is already doing uh, recoverable, uh, relaunchable sounding rocket kind of stuff. Their, their, their STIG vehicle looks really just great. Uh, Mass and Space Systems is doing vertical takeoff, vertical landing uh, systems, and they're, they're uh, progressively working their way up to doing the same kinds of, um, kind of suborbital recoverable flights. Uh, I've actually got something that I really want to fly on a mast and space system vehicle. <laughs> so, unfortunately, I can't talk about that too much, but uh, I mean, just the, the way that they're doing that and, and going after that and making changes and, and iterating 
you know, fly, fly, test, test, fly, fly, you know, change things, fly the next thing, do the next test, you know, really iterate through that really quickly is just really cool. Yeah, and uh, touching on Dave Madison's stuff, I mean, uh, I'm still thinking of the DCX back in the 90s that uh, uh, Pete Conrad was working on. That's right. sort of along the same lines. So um, I'm, I'm sure there's all big, you know, uh, I'm sure Madison's taking advantage of some of that uh, technology that uh, McDonnell Douglas and, and Pete Conrad worked on to, to get that going. Yeah, and, and that whole community is, is sharing things together, uh, too. Yeah. They, um, Armadillo and, and Armadillo and Mastin uh, share stuff back and forth. Um, their designs look very, very similar. Um, it's just what they're doing. You know, it, it's what they're doing makes sense. You know, so if it makes sense, keep doing it. So we're trying to find, you know, in, in our business of, of building satellite uh, avionics and software, we try and find new ways of doing things and, and uh, keeping it simple and only making things as complex as they need to be. Um, one of the uh, one of the real mantras is uh, that I've that I've very much come to believe in in this whole business is good enough. You know, if you make it more than good enough, then all you've done is spend money that you in time that you didn't need to spend. If it's not good enough, then it's not good enough, and you you know you're going to lose something. You know you're going to you're going to lose a satellite, or you're going to you know if it's a manned vehicle, you have real problems. Uh, so you know it needs to be good enough, but if it's more than good enough, then uh, all you've done is you know exceeded the requirements you didn't need to, and spent more time and money than you had to make, and then you you've wasted some of your customers' time and money. Um, I'll, I'll give you my my favorite example of that, and that is I read a biography of Richard Feynman, and yes. not only, be a, not only being a fantastic character, uh, the, the the particular book that I read was uh, was called Genius. Um, by James Gleick. Yes, and, I've read uh, that book. Yeah, 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 it's a great book. And and one of the things that they describe in there is is Richard Feynman was head of the computing division working on the atomic bomb project. And the computing division at the time was a bunch of men and women with pencils and slide rolls. There was not even any mechanical calculators, right? And Feynman had to figure out all the equations necessary in order to to compute how do you make and a, a fission reaction explode, right? How do you how do you control that reaction? What's the what's the detonation look like for this? Essentially, they have a an implosion of a you know um, kind of a, a regular uh, explosives, probably TNT or something you know more explosive than that, uh, and that drives an explosion in, and that crushes uh, your um, fissionable material and creates a then it creates a a bigger explosion than the nuclear explosion. So they had to do all that with pencils and slide rules. And Feynman had to figure out a couple of things. First off, he had to figure out all the equations necessary. Then he had to simplify them uh, down to the point uh, that they could be computed in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, he figured out mathematics shortcuts of all those things, and he trained his people in those processes and procedures and all the al and all the algorithms that they needed in order to go off and compute those things. Right? He also had to figure out for every computation that had to be done how many significant digits did you need. Right? If 0.1 is a good enough answer, then you only need one significant digit. If you need, a, you need if you need the answer to one one millionth, then you need six digits. Right? And so. But if you did eight digits, you spent a lot of extra time when six was good enough, 
you spent if you spend the extra time to get eight or nine or twelve digits and you only needed six, then all you've done is waste time. You have an answer that's good enough with six. If you compute the answer to twelve, all you've done is waste time and money. So he had to figure out what the what the equations were, what the shortcuts were, train his people, figure out what was good enough, and then execute on time and on budget in order to make the bomb project happen. That's like a microcosm of everything that I do in my day-to-day life. I have policies and procedures. I have processes that are, you know, if I have processes and procedures that are too big and make me do too many things, then I'm never going to get my job done. Um, I have requirements that, you know, a, a satellite... Um, system engineer is going to give me that says, I need your satellite to do this. Well, if he gives me a requirement that's more than he needs, you know, if I, he tells me that I have to compute a time uh, on the spacecraft to one one billionth of a second, I'm going to say, no, that's more than it needs to be. What do you really need? What's good enough? One one thousandth of a second is probably not good enough. Maybe I need it to know it to, uh, you know, 50 microseconds. You know, but I don't need to know it to a nanosecond. You know, so what's good <laughs> right. enough, right? And 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 if and if they tell me that it's a billionth of a second, then I have to go test it to a billionth of a second, and that's really hard. It's really time consuming. Fifty microseconds is hard. A hundred milliseconds is easy. You know, one one tenth of a second. A hundred milliseconds is a tenth of a second. So a tenth of a second is easy. You know, fifty microseconds is hard, and a nanosecond is bloody impossible, you know, and I'm going to spend an incredible amount of time and money doing something when 100 milliseconds was good enough or 50 microseconds was good enough, you know, so we have to, we have to very much figure out what's right, what's right sized, what's good enough, and we have to execute to that, and then I can tell you, ah, I know that I can do that on time and on budget, you know, and then we have to go off and really actually execute it. Right. So, and you hear, you hear rumors or you hear stories all the time of, you know, especially satellites, it tends to get a lot of interest because it's really expensive. Uh, satellites that are over budget, you know, uh, satellite software that doesn't work. Uh, program managers on satellite systems are always worried about software. I can't tell you how many times I've had people go, oh, boy, the software guys, they're always late and stuff's always out of control. And I look at them and I go, not on my watch. <laughs> and they look at me with kind of raised eyebrows, and they go, "Really?" I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "Okay, prove me, prove it to me." <laughs> you know. And then I pull out, "Oh well, the last six programs that we did were all on time and under budget." You know, Elcross mm-hmm. was actually the flight software was actually on time and under budget. And the and the people that we were working with that were building the main spacecraft, system engineers and, and program managers, they were dumbfounded. Right. You know, I actually got an award from one of the vice presidents for never having been on the critical path just because he was so dumbfounded that the flight software <laughs> team was just not late. He was like, how could, how could this be? Every other program I've had, they were just totally out of control. You know, I was like, we know our product, we know our processes, we're right-sized for what we need to do, and we do stuff that's good enough, you know? Yeah. And, think- uh, and people were like, wow, sounds pretty reasonable. <laughs> You think the Russians should go ahead and take a look at this stuff, given the fact that uh, we've got we had the Phobos grunt failure uh, a while back ago? You think they have to follow the same type of paradigm, or what? I think that they certainly ought to. They uh, the reports coming out, like I said, I, that's one of those things that I follow. That's my business, right? Right. 
and and so I try and follow those those kinds of reports that come out and say, well, here's why this here's why this mission failed, and that mission came out and said it failed because the software failed. And I go, oh, that's my job. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's what I was they, just thinking. What, what did they do? Yeah, and uh, and to a certain extent, it was software, and to a certain extent, it was, um, you know, hey, you know what? It's expensive and and time consuming and they didn't take the time to really do it right. One of the one of the mantras of the space industry is uh, better, cheaper, faster. Pick two. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, I think the one that's uh, cheaper, take your time. Cheaper, longer is probably uh, cheaper, better, longer is probably my favorite. Uh, you know what? Take your time and do it right. Right. Uh, exactly. You know, otherwise you're going to lose missions. You know, and if it's a if it's a spectacular, you know, world wide known failure like that and the you know the the your country ends up losing face because you didn't you know you didn't spend the time and money uh, necessary in order to do the proper engineering but well, and now that you know I, I just really I really pity the guys who you know they pour, you pour your lives into these things L cross was an exception in that it, in that it was really only 3 years from the time the mission was awarded until the time the mission was over. Uh, other missions that I have worked on have been much longer. Right. Uh, and, and some of the stuff that uh, some of my colleagues are working on is, you know, I mean, they're working on the James Webb Space Telescope. It's, right. you know, software's <laughs> been in development for a decade. Yeah, right. You know, um, uh, I think we went, and, we went and figured out how many man years, uh, you know, WMAP had in it, you know, and, and, uh, so when I see those kinds of failures, I just my heart just goes out to this the people who work on those things because you really do you really pour your heart into it. I could be I could be making more money in another industry. I do this industry because I love it. Um, I'm a I am a true believer. I have drunk the Kool Aid. I'm a yes. I am a I'm I'm a guy who wants the wants the human race to boldly go where no man has gone before. I really am, and. And so, you know, when you have those kinds of failures, and I know that I'm, you know, I am not alone in this industry in, in being that kind, of, uh, that kind of enthusiast. There are people to whom it's a job, it's a nine-to-five job, and they go home. There are other people, there's a lot, a lot of people like me who are, are, you know, like I said, true believers. And, yeah. well, my heart just goes out to people when they say, when they lose, you lose something like that. I just can't, I just can't imagine. I, I have been... Again, knock on wood, very, very lucky, and and uh, and some of it is luck that you know I've worked on great missions, all of which have been very successful. So, so I was wondering too, you're you're now doing with your with some of the outreach efforts you're doing. First off, why don't we talk a little bit about what's what's coming up? I know space space up Houston um, right. is getting their their act together. Can you first t- describe to an individual who doesn't know what space up or an unconference is and, and, and what makes it unique and, and why they should go? Oh, sure. Uh, the, the first space up that, um, I became aware of, well, I guess it was probably the first one, um, which was space up San Diego two years ago. No, yeah, probably two years ago. Um, I had no, at that time, I had no idea what an unconference was and, and they were describing this, uh, this event where they would get people together who wanted to talk about space, but they wouldn't have any pre-planned agenda. 
And the idea of, of a, an unconference or what is kind of colloquially known in the tech world as a bar camp, the, the bar camp concept is, it's like this. If you go to a conference where there's pre-planned speakers and the speakers are kind of boring and you go out in the hallway and start talking with people out in the hallway and a couple other people gather around in the hallway and you start having this really great hallway conversation, wouldn't it be cool just to go in a room and talk, to every, we'll talk with everybody about this? That's what an unconference is. And I had just been to an event that, that I had paid to go to. This was a, a, a personal thing. It wasn't a company thing. I had actually paid to go to an event, and, and there, were some, there were some fantastic speakers. There were some great things. And there were some others that were kind of like, yeah, okay, that was kind of interesting, but not that great. Um, and I'm not going to say what that conference was, but anyhow. Uh, and, and, but, I, but I would go out in the hallway, and I, would, and I would start chatting with people about things. And we have this great conversation. And so when this idea of this face-up unconference came out, I thought, you know those hallway conversations? This is all hallway conversations. Everybody just goes into a room and talks about whatever they want to talk about. I'm like, this is great. How cool is that? Right? And so uh, I, I attended face-up San Diego virtually. Uh, it was all broadcast on the Internet. It's all archived. You can go watch the whole thing. There was four uh, pods at once, four different rooms at a time, and they were all broadcast concurrently. So I actually brought up four browser windows, and I was watching them all four at once, and I would mute, mute them and then listen to them and try and you know, listen to different parts of the conversations. But I, was, I attended the entire conference at one time. It was so cool. I was sitting in my living room. It was great. So uh, the next summer, they said, we're going to bring it to Washington, D.C. And uh, so Space Up D.C. happened, and, and I was like, I was in with both feet. Um, and uh, I actually took sound systems down and, and microphones and small mixing boards and worked with Space Vidcast and uh, helped them, you know, get good audio and broadcast all the rooms. Um, and uh, I led, actually I led two conversations, one about uh, thermal nuclear rocket engines, and the other one was about uh, extremely large uh, rockets that had been proposed in the past and had never been built, but how, if you built them, how would that change the, the way that we currently do business? And so those, those are actually archived on uh, YouTube, uh, along with actually all the rest of that uh, conference. And, but I've actually got a link from them on my, my website at untiedmusic.com. So if you go to untiedmusic.com, they're, they're pretty much right on the front page. There's uh, several uh, videos on YouTube that I've been a part of Specifically with Space Vidcast, because I've done a couple of interviews with them as well. And uh, but the, the, those two uh, sessions from Space FDC are there, and, and I'm very proud of those. They came out really great, and and um, and that whole thing was just quirky and interesting. And I met some of the most fantastic people. Um, uh, every everything from uh, a ten year old who was a uh, who's a son of uh, one of my coworkers, who is just a space nut and just you know, he came and, and had all kinds of great fun and, and all kinds of great conversations uh, with him, all the way up to uh, guys who are building rockets. Dave Mastin was there. Um, and that's the first time I'd really met Dave and, and got to chat with him a bit. And, and uh, of course, the Space Vidcast folks were there doing broadcasting live. Um, and, and that was Ken Cheer there, Flying Jenny from the Space yeah. Society. So. 
Yeah, that, that was one of the first. Uh, that was one of the first efforts we actually sponsored here. So, mm-hmm. um, I was I was there in attendance as well, and 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 it was it was quite fabulous. I mean, I, I I'm going to have to go back and, and listen to your uh, your stuff, Emery, because I, if I recall exactly, I I was up against uh, Doug Ellison too at that point. I think he was talking about something, and it was like, oh, oh God, probably. which one do I go to? That's <laughs> That's a, that's a hard choice. I'd probably actually want to go to anything that Doug did. I, I that was the first time I had met Doug, and um, oh, he's he, he's grand. He is just an absolute. Oh, I'll, love him. He's grand, and he's a blast. Um, uh, I, I had a I had a business trip out to Los Angeles, and I had a I had a free afternoon, so I I pinged Doug and said, "Hey, can I come over to JPL?" And he took me on like a six hour tour of, of JPL and walked all up and down up all the way up to the Mars yard. And, and I got to see, um, MSL before it launched and, oh, oh my gosh, what a great time. So can you divulge a little bit about, you know, if, you know, even if you want to just whet our appetite a little bit of what, what, uh, space up Houston is going to be, uh, going to be doing, uh, you know, as far as what's up their sleeve or can you, or, uh, you know, I, I really, I uh, wish I was going to be there. Actually, um, <laughs> I, I live in uh, I live in Baltimore, so Houston is a bit of a haul. Yeah. Uh, although I, I was seriously considering, I actually looked at plane tickets yesterday, and just decided, you know, it was going to cost me about I don't know five hundred dollars between you know airplane flights and hotel or whatever. I, I just there was just better uses I had. I I actually had the money, but I was just like I just I need a new you know I need a new computer monitor for my recording studio i need it i need a new HD right. camera and i you know some people have actually asked me to do some video work with them and i'm like i really gotta just not go and buy this hardware <laughs> which is a tough choice i, I mean it, it it sounds like it was a tough choice and actually it really was a tough choice that they've got um uh let's see mike fossum is going to be there actually mike fossum uh, is that right yes I, uh, that's what i heard and then um they're going to have uh, a really, what sounds like a really great reception, as well as the normal uh, space up uh, things um, where they would just, you know, get people together and, and talk about space. Um, they've actually asked me to be an online moderator for that. So I'll be in one of the chat rooms uh, with, along with the, you know, the video that's being broadcast, I'll be in the chat room along with that room or that pod, one of those rooms. Um, just kind of keep things cool. If I remember yeah. correctly, though, there is one space up tradition that uh, has made me almost uh, lose my lunch a couple of times watching it. <laughs> is that set to reoccur? The annual moon pie eating contest. I think that they have a moon pie eating contest whenever space geeks get together. <laughs> and a moon pie contest is well. First off, you'd have to go find out what a moon pie is if you don't know. But it's a uh, it's a, a marshmallow and and very dry cookie coated in chocolate, and along with that you have to eat an entire moon pie and you also have to drink an entire 16 ounce can of RC cola. And the object is to do it as fast as you can, and it's really a lot harder than it sounds. <laughs> there is and somebody that's done it in under a minute, though. Uh, under this. Uh, yeah, there was. I think the I think the record is in like in the forty eight second range. God bless them. It's a very unique event if you've never been to one, which I haven't, but I have watched each of them online because there are online video um, places where you can see what's going on in each pod, as it's called, which 
people just sign up on a board to speak and they just get up and talk. It's, it's a great idea. Yep. And where else can you go to go ahead and throw tribbles at each other? It's a beautiful thing. Oh, that's a hilarious. <laughs> at this point, I'm going to jump in and interrupt the show in progress. What is so hilarious that we were just talking about? What are we referencing to in regards to tribbles? Well, you're going to have to wait to find out. Because in our interview with Emery, we recorded an entire two hours worth of audio. Rather than cutting down two hours worth of audio into 45 minutes and leaving out some of the great parts, we decided to, for the second time ever in Talking Space history, release an episode in parts. So this is part one. Coming up in part two, we will finish discussing a little bit about Space Up. We will go into more of his endeavors in regards to music, public speaking, and other space topics. So we hope you will stay tuned for that. Coming out regular time next week, which would be Wednesday, February 29th, 2012, if you are waiting for the release of it. So we hope you will listen to part two. And in the meantime, though, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. <laughs>